Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, and welcome to another episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamil. Oh, we're a week away from Christmas. Are you okay? Do you even care? Do you celebrate Christmas? I don't. I don't care about any um, religious background of the day, personally. Uh, I also find family really intense, and I don't like groups of more than five people, so lockdown is kind of perfect for me. I normally find myself around this time of year just helping out at local shelters or sitting alone, eating uh, noodles, watching Netflix, having a fucking great time, but I'm not sure if that is your vibe. And so if you are alone at this time of year, I hope that's somewhat out of choice and that you're okay. If not, as I've said before, we will get through this. We'll be through this soon and we'll get out of this together. And so please hang on and phone friends and use Zoom, even though we fucking all hate Zoom by now. And if you are spending it with family, I hope that's okay because that's a lot, isn't it? Sometimes they can be a lot, especially this year. Uh, The reason I have chosen today's guest is because I feel like she is the perfect person to just make us all feel like it's okay. It's okay to not find everything easy. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to be reflective of oneself and, and kind of pick yourself apart in ways that are just kind of helping you construct who you're going to be next. I'm talking about Dawn O'Porter, who is a wonderful writer and host, and and she's someone that I've looked up to for the longest time. In fact, when I first ever met my agent when I was 22 and I was about to become a TV host, she said, you know, who do you want to be when you when you grow up? And, and I said Dawn Porter because she's this fabulous documentary maker and just she's so funny and authentic and relatable and interesting and interested And I think that's why so many people love her work. She has had a really, really difficult year. She lost one of her best friends, if not her very best friend in the world, at the beginning of this year, at the beginning of lockdown. And then the world just stopped turning and she ended up writing a book very fucking quickly called Life in Pieces, which is now available, kind of like a journey, a diary entry journey of, of what this year has been for her and, you know, her husband and her two small children. How do any of us cope? And I think that... It's really resonated with a lot of people around the world because it's been fucking hard and we don't need to be kind of force-fed toxic positivity at this time of year and we don't need to be told that we should be achieving great things or everything should be amazing and we shouldn't feel pressured to come out of this better than we were before. We should just at best come out of this alive. And she's so, so candid. And I think if you are a parent out there, in particular a mum, she really goes into detail about, you know, all the things that she does. She talks about the struggles of motherhood. She talks about the struggles of her career and moments where it's taken huge dips and the shame associated with that and how how much she hated her old value system of thinking success equals happiness. She talked about struggling when her husband was doing better than her. Uh, She talked about how difficult this year has been. She talked about drinking a lot uh, and drinking what she describes as too much, but 
who knows? And I'm sure she's not, and I'm sure she's fine. Um, but generally, she's sort of everyone's best friend. And I hope that's how you feel at the end of this episode. I think you'll feel heard and seen and comforted, and you'll you'll want to go out and buy her book, Life in Pieces, to make you feel less alone at the end of what has been truly the stupidest fucking year of any of our lives. Bloody Porter. Welcome to I Way. No, How are you? Oh, no, fuck, I got it wrong. <laughs> Starting it again. We'll keep that in. <laughs> Dawn, oh, bloody Porter. Welcome to I Way. How are you? Fuck, what's up? I'm great. I'm so insulted, but I'm absolutely fine. I know you've gone bright red. <laughs> It's the rage, the I rage. Know, I completely you. understand, especially because it's such a great name. It's my favourite version of someone slightly altering their name after marriage that I've ever heard. And I didn't know that your children had taken on the O Porter surname as well. Yeah, so they've got my surname. We we invented a surname and then gave it to the boys. We're so modern. Oh, I love it so much because your your husband is Chris O'Dowd, and as the modern day feminist as you are. You took a little chunk, you took a little snip of the O and then you've gone in with the rest of Porter and I love it so much. I just forgot it. That's all right. And the apostrophe. Um, I read an article that someone wrote the other day that um, said what a terrible thing it is to have a no apostrophe in your name because no forms accept it. Banks don't like apostrophes. Like it really makes your life incredibly complicated. And they cited me in this article saying, I hope she realises that she made a huge mistake by taking an O and an apostrophe. And they're right. It's a real pain in my ass, but it's cute. Okay. Well, I love it. I, I love it. I just don't remember it, but I love it. <laughs> um, I, uh, I'm really excited to have you here. Uh, as I like to remind you at least once a year, um, we met because I walked up to you in Soho House one day, um, which sounds very <laughs> bougie of me. Um, but I was a young TV host and I walked up to you and was uh, very much so shaking inside as I told you that you were my hero and why I had become a TV presenter. Because I, I was kind of, I had a very accidental career in that I was kind of plucked from obscurity in a pub to do this audition for T4, uh, which is a youth TV programme that I did in the UK back in 2000 nine which is ages wow. ago um and I got given this agent I didn't really know what an agent was and she was like you know okay so w- what do you want to do what do you want to be and I hadn't really planned on ever being in tv so I was like I guess I guess I'd like to be Dawn Dawn Porter please can I can I please be <laughs> Dawn Porter and uh and she was like yeah sure I was like I feel like she really makes documentaries that make people laugh but really help people and like I've learned a lot from her so I think I'd like to be like her I want to help people and educate people and I'd, I'd like to be Dawn Porter <laughs> and so she was like right okay well I guess we'll try and make you Dawn Porter and so then I got to meet you like three years later and tell you that and you were you were a little bit freaked out you were very Is, nice to me but you were a bit freaked out a few reasons why I was freaked out. Firstly, because to me, you were so um, famous and successful. So <clears throat> it seemed ridiculous. Also, you're hands down one of the most beautiful women to ever walk the earth. And when you approach someone <laughs> so who's ridiculous. sitting down, when you approach someone who's sitting down, just so that you're aware of this, I was at my computer working because I'm really bougie and used to write in Soho House. And I look up and this absolute goddess, leggy, beautiful, recognizer off the telly angel is standing above me and says, you're the reason I went into TV. And I was just like, uh, oh, uh, okay. It was 
a gorgeous moment and I really appreciated it. But I mean, it's insane. <laughs> That's very, very sweet. Yeah, you've just, you were baffled by me. Um, but also when we were talking about this yesterday, when I was just reminding you of that, you also mentioned that you were having a bit of a shit time in your life. I was. It was weird that you came over at that point because I was actually probably around that time, honestly, just coming out, just maybe coming out the other side of not working for ages. My TV career had gone completely to shit. I'd been really su- successful. I can't even say it. Really successful in my <laughs> in my 20s. I think that's why it all went wrong. I just can't talk. Um, really successful in my 20s and made all these documentaries. And then when I got to about 29, I moved out to LA to make a series for Channel 4, which was great. And then they were like, oh, we're going to give you a second series, going to give you a second series. So I was like, great. So I spent all my money um, on mid-century furniture and, and signed up to a year in this really cute little apartment in West Hollywood. It's like, brilliant. I'm going to live out in LA now and have um, this TV series. And then the months went by and the months went by and the months went by. And after 10 months, one of the commissioners at Channel 4 called me and he just said, are you sitting down? And in my memory, which is way more Hollywood than reality, I remember falling to the ground. <laughs> And he was like, we're not going to give you a second series. This was the kind of the beginning of, well, actually it wasn't quite the beginning because that 10 months was hard. But of a few years of just not being able to get any work in TV at all, living in a country where I only had a visa where I could work with one particular company who didn't have any work for me on the other side of the world from my success, however I said it earlier. And, um, and it just all went really wrong. And, uh, I think when I saw you, I had just got my first book deal, which was great. I was starting to kind of claw out of it again. But there was a good few years in there that were just terrible. So to have someone come up to me and say, and remind me that I had been on TV and that it had been good was, uh, it was, it was just quite a shock because by the point you came up to me in Soho House, I had convinced myself that I was utterly shit. Oh, that's so annoying. And also like, I can't believe that we've known each other for this many years and I didn't know until last night that that's what was even going on in your life. Because to me, you have just been this like ever-present, successful figure of feminism and information and and realism in a way. Like you were one of the, you were kind of part of that n- new brand or breed of celebrity who were just like not going to deal with the facade and the nonsense and the unrealistic no. ideals to live up to. Like you felt like, you felt like you were on our side. You felt like us, like you'd snuck in like kind of through a window. And obviously you're very beautiful and like, you know, you're very charming and charismatic, but you just still felt like you were ours, like you were us, like we were seeing Hollywood or seeing the world or seeing the beauty industry or the fashion, like seeing the seeing everything through your eyes in a way that felt very relatable. So I've never I had no idea that you had a dip. No, and do you know what's funny though? You just reminded me of when I first got called um, a girl, the girl next door in an article, and I remember being gutted. <laughs> I was like, oh, I thought, <laughs> I thought I was way. Well, I'm not trying to be the girl next door. I thought I was like really in, in the castle down the road and really special. And everyone's just like, you're so, you're just, and you're like, just like everyone's best mate. You're just the girl next door. And I remember kind of going, no, Dawn, it's a good thing. Just. <laughs> <laughs> be happy about it I, I was like the first time you get called it it's, it was a moment but um you know as you're saying that what's so interesting this is what I've learned as now a 42 year old well 42 in January 
is talking about the difference between what, well, the different ways that you equate success. So when you say those things, I was, even though I didn't really work physically for a few years, I was still all of the things that I'd been before and all of the things that I am now and still had all of that stuff, but I equated all of my success to finances at that time. So when I wasn't earning money, I felt like a failure. And that is just, it's such a frustrating, creatively stumping mentality when you equate success to finances, which I don't do anymore because it's, um, it's just too disappointing in this industry. You just go through, you go through periods of time of just earning loads of money and being doing really well. And then you go through periods of time of not earning much money. That's just the general life of a freelancer. And the trick is when you're going through the times of earning not money, not to consider yourself not to be the thing or as good at, um, as you are when you're earning money, you're just not earning much money at that particular moment in time. You're still good at what you do. And that kind of retrospective look on it, like I have a few months of not getting much work now. I don't beat myself up creatively and go into a dark hole. Well, I mean, yeah, this has been a shit year for everyone, for all freelancers. No one's been able to really work. And so it doesn't mean that you're bad at your job. Sometimes it just means that you don't get the work and you, you know, keep plugging away and eventually it will come back. Um, and I think you can also like fall into the horrifying trap of comparison culture, you know, yes. then looking what some looking at what someone else is doing and forgetting that maybe when you were doing really well, they weren't. Like we're all ebbing and flowing and having our dips all the time. Definitely. Also, I think there's no autobiography that is good where it was just a great story about constant happiness and success. <laughs> yeah, no like, one wants to read that fucking book. No, you want to be you want to be the old person who's having like, you know, tea with your grandkids saying, talking of your battles and like what you went through and love and success and have these lessons and stories to tell. Like, no, I don't. And this is what you realize when you're 30 and something like that happens, and especially when it involves fame and shame and being embarrassed about not getting any work. Um you don't see the bigger picture. The older that I've got, the more I'm like, God, this, oh God, it's all so cheesy. But it's all part of that rich tapestry, isn't it? Like if, if that happened to me again and the work dried up, I don't think that I would get as sad as I was then. I think that was a kind of, that was my reaction at that age when I thought all I was was a paycheck. I had to keep earning. And if I wasn't earning, I wasn't anything. And did you like, did you used to have an attachment to fame when you were younger? Like, did you want to be like sort of a known prominent figure? Was that something that you cared about when you were younger? So I I did when I was younger because I got brought up on a tiny island, Guernsey, which is like seven miles by four miles. And it's just off the coast of France. And not much went down on Guernsey. And so I wanted to be an actress when I was that age. And so I would just fantasize about my name and lights and just being really famous. And it was all about being famous. And I thought that's all I wanted and all I wanted to do. So I went to drama school, got to drama school. And within six months of being there, realized that I hated acting. (laughs) I absolutely hated it. I had no interest in it. So just spent those kind of three years getting wasted and um, not not really doing much at all. And uh, so I, as I came out of drama school, went into TV production and then thought I wanted to be a TV presenter. And still, I think in the back of my head, it was about fame and recognition and right. being, being a somebody and um, just being seen. And then I did my shows And I never really got famous. I had a really strange, it was really, it was actually, I'm very lucky because 
it, I was never like, written about by the tabloids. No one's ever been particularly interested in me unless they literally watch my shows and know who I am. So it was very kind of small. I was in a position before I turned 30 to get stuff made. I could work, but I wasn't like walking down the street getting recognised and having any of that stuff. Never Apart from by me. Yeah, <laughs> literally following you around. <laughs> yeah. so, so I quickly, in my 20s, I think I, I kind of experienced that. And then when it all fell apart um, and when it all started to come back, I realised the thing that I didn't want or wasn't interested or didn't care about was the recognition part. And when I started to pull my career back together in my mid-30s, all I wanted to do was write and all I wanted to do is write books, which really isn't about fame. You, When you write books, you have to have enough of a notoriety to sell your books. But I didn't care if my face was ever seen. I stopped this kind of needing to be the centre of attention. I, All of that fame part of it, Went away and I, I completely shifted to just wanting to being really successful. And by successful, I meant I want to get paid to do the job I love, which is right. So I've gone through a lot with the fame thing. It starts off where I thought that's all I wanted. And now um, I've got quite a famous husband. And I'm always, when we're out and about and people are wanting photos with him, I'm just like, God, I'm so glad it's not me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Sorry, I know it's you. No, yeah, you fucking bitch. <laughs> fucking bitch. Uh, no, it's, I look it's, at you and I just think, thank God that's not me. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting there, my heart was just sinking another inch every time you brought up another thing that's great about existing in your in your status. Um, but I remember also reading about, you know, because you, you've written columns for such a long time and and I've read your writing wherever I can find it and just learned a lot from you. And, and I remember you, you know, being very open at the time around the fact that when you first met your husband, who is Chris O'Dowd, who's in lots of wonderful films and TV shows, uh, that his career was kind of really just taking off around the time that you two got together, which was at the same time that your career was having a bit of a dip. Let's just set the scene. All so right. we'd wake up we'd wake up every morning and Chris had just done Bridesmaids, which like catapulted him into being like global superstars, so it felt like at the time. So we'd wake up every morning and he would just, you know, pick up his phone and it would be like, you wanted on this, 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 and this, and this, and this. And I would just wake up in the morning to like, you've just been fired from your column. <laughs> you, uh, and then my agent would be like, terribly sorry to tell you, you've just also lost this other job. And so it was just this really odd time. And what's so disappointing is that I let it consume me to such a degree. I'd say I massively enjoyed that moment of success for Chris. Um, we were, I'd never been on red carpets before. This is what I mean about, say, me being well-known. Before I met Chris, I'd never, I'd been on TV for five years, but I'd never done a red carpet before. Like that wasn't my life. And then the first big red carpet I did was the Bridesmaids premiere, which was absolutely massive. And um, I was so, you know, I had my friend's shoes on that I had to have like three insoles in because they were too big. I did my own hair and makeup and it was awful. And I just thought, what am I doing here? I'm so, so out of place. And I was so caught up in my own insecurity and disappointment in myself. I just didn't enjoy it. I just didn't enjoy it. And it's so frustrating because it should have been for just the best time ever. And I just felt like this kind of just down. Oh God, it's so annoying. Anyway, I had this thing now, like whenever we go to any event, I just try and have the most fun. I've got to make up for it. No one you hear people say, oh, celebrity events and awards things oh it's quite boring I'm like no I love it I love it I get really stuck in because I feel like I missed such an opportunity when all of that was happening so I just look back and I just think you do have like now I'm thinking about it every time I've ever seen you at a festival or at an event you are always the smiliest silliest person there 
Oh, even so when I fun. even when I turned up in a chicken suit, dressed fully as a chicken, in at that big <sighs> event, the look on you were still somehow even sillier and more mischievous than me. And do you remember I wore? Do you remember I wore those diamante six inch heels with my chicken suit because I was like even because okay, it's just for just for a background. You, a bit, I mean, you have to explain. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. um, I did not. Uh, I underestimated the British public sense of humour, <laughs> and I said that if. For every thousand dollars I was able to raise, for a thousand pounds at the time, I was able to raise for comic relief, I'd wear a chicken suit. The public in under 24 hours gave me 30 fucking thousand pounds. So I had to wear this fucking chicken suit for 30 days. And because I have so much, too much integrity, I would now argue, I didn't take it off for the whole time. It literally disintegrated in my hand. I was somehow able to like shimmy and change my knickers every day. But I would wear that every single day to everything I did. I got kicked off a show with with Prince Charles that I was supposed to be hosting because he was like... His Royal Highness is not going to stand next to someone dressed like a giant chicken. Uh, I lost lost a bunch of work and campaigns because I was like, I'm really sorry, modelling job, but I have to wear this chicken suit. And so they were just, I get fired all the time. So when you turned up, when you turned up, because I think I was hosting that event, when you turned up in the chicken suit, you text me before, I think, to, to say it. And I was just like, oh, what the fuck is she talking about? And then when you walked in, I remember just thinking, I, I just remember like, Jamila's actually wearing a chicken suit. Yeah. <laughs> and it was That's this really happening. like fancy event. And I tried to show up by wearing like high heel stiletto de monte shoes <sighs> to sort of try and get away with it. <laughs> and a diamond handbag with this. And it wasn't like, by the way, it was, it was a very big, fluffy, <laughs> like full on chicken suit. It was, it was, it was enormous, this suit and very yellow. And it had these red wings that joined my wrist to my waist. So anytime I would lift my arms, I would have these giant red <laughs> wings. And I wore it on national television and to every event for 30 fucking days. It's, I mean, it's absolutely incredible. My other favourite one that you did was when you turned up to the Glamour Awards in a wedding dress. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> That's because no one would dress me. Everyone said I was too fat and everyone was like, you're too fat to be dressed for this event. And I was only like a size 12 at the time, UK 12, which is like a fucking eight in America. And, and they were just like, no, sorry. And so I was like, right, well then fuck you. If I'm going to have a moment on the red carpet, I'm going to have my bloody moment myself. And I went and spent like $2,000 on a massive Vivian Westwood wedding dress. It was so funny. I can, I can remember that one as well. I can remember seeing you and like, I just said to Chris, Chris, I think Jamila's wearing a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> I was just trying to make a point. Oh, I love <laughs> it. Honestly, you're I'm still so, allowed to so have fun. fun at a size 12 and up. Um, anyway, yeah, no, it's so ridiculous. Anyway, what were we talking about? So, but I, I love seeing your cheeky little face at everything. At anything Thanks, that I see you at, because you and Chris are always a bit drunk and having a fucking brilliant time and the most fun people to hang out with at anything. And it's so funny to hear where part of that comes from is knowing that you missed a moment. The amount of fucking years of my life I missed because I was worried about the way that I looked or how I was being perceived by other people. Just, I look back and honestly, Dawn, if there wasn't picked picture and film proof of my 20s I would never believe it happened because I didn't remember it all I remember was just hating myself that's crazy our value systems were so shit and that's why I've made the most of my last like getting a second chance in America I've really made like it my mission to enjoy everything as much as possible and really like set my boundaries properly reassess the way that I have a relationship with myself and just have fun 
with as much Have of this fun. as I can. Yeah. Do you know, I was just thinking about you because um, when you first got out to LA and I saw you quite a lot and I remember you, I can't remember what reason you came out here that was kind of the public reason that you came out here, but I remember you saying to me quite sheepishly, I just really want to be in a comedy. I want to do comedy acting. No, I didn't you... want to be an actor. I wanted to be a comedy writer. I wanted to be in comedy. Right. And whatever you was, you said, and you was kind of, you just didn't say it with confidence. You're like, no, I know. And everyone's going to think I can't do that. I can't do that. And then suddenly we went out for dinner, I think the night or a couple of nights after you got your part in The Good Place. And I was like, you just came out here. You did the thing. <laughs> You got the thing and now look at you. It's absolutely amazing. Like I, it's, it's so inspiring because I think people come out here with a dream and it either works out or it doesn't. And I just love the times when it does, because a lot of people have trodden the path that you um, trodded did. And, um, and it hasn't, it hasn't gone so well. I'm very proud of you is what I'm trying to say. Well, when you were like, you know, coming towards the end of that dip around the time that we met you and someone, you know, a publisher basically who'd read a couple of your columns, who thought you were a great writer, just had this belief in you that you could write fiction. You'd never written fucking fiction before, got no. a book deal and you just threw yourself in. And now you are such a respected fucking fiction writer who so oh, many people mad. look up to it's so mad but again that was a huge risk I wouldn't I would be way too terrified to try and write fiction I don't think I have a single like ounce of imagination in my brain I can't imagine how vulnerable one has to be to put yourself out there like that where it's just about your brain you can't distract with any other thing it's just your ability to tell a story and it went so well but I'm so proud of you even just for doing it for throwing yourself in like that well it, it came at a time where so I used to write this column for a, this weekly column in um, London, which when everything had gone wrong was my lifeline. It was my only job. And I, I loved it. But then they, they sacked me. And I was like, oh, my God, without that column, I literally have nothing. It was a great mm. column, by the way. <clears throat> Thanks. Um, and what was really insulting is they didn't actually replace me for ages. They just gave it to someone different every week. I was like, oh, you didn't even have a better idea. You just. <laughs> oh, God. Um, I know, but I think they'd taken me on as like someone who had my own TV series and I was quite exciting. And then they just realized that I was just never on TV. So not actually publicizing their magazine at all. Anyway, it's, you know, it is what it is. Um, so I'd lost that column and it was only a few months later that I was in, back in London. So I said to Chris, we were here and I said to Chris, I need to go back to London. I need to try and claw something back because nothing's going to happen for me in America. And so we're back there and this lovely lady called Emily just called me out of the blue and said that she'd loved my columns and would I ever consider writing young adult fiction? And I said no, but then we were on the phone for about an hour and a half and by the end of the hour and a half, I'd kind of come up with an idea for a novel. She gave me a two book deal. And here's the thing, I didn't have anything else. So it was like this lifeline, but I, I was so scared to write fiction, but I realized by the end of that call that all I'd ever wanted to do was write fiction. That was all I'd ever wanted to do. I said, she said it to me and I was like, that you've just, you've offered me the thing that I thought I was going to do in the garden shed when I was 70 and maybe have the, you know, the confidence to show someone my manuscript. And so that just pulled me out of a really deep fog that I'd been in for a few years. And I wrote the books and I loved them. And then I just, you know, luckily just kept getting to write my books. Went all right, didn't it? Well, you've been kind of conjuring up stories since you were a little kid. Like, even if you were the character in those stories, it's like, she'll be the big famous actress one day. Like, you always had an active imagination. Yeah. I felt the first story I wrote was when I was 10 and it was called Nightmare on Albert Square. And it was based on Doc Cotton from our long-running soap EastEnders. And it's really, really powerful storytelling. My sister actually got it. Um, it was on a sheet of A4. My sister got it framed and gave it to me for my 40th because it was just... 
it was just so beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really, really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your chest, but also all week you know as you're bottling things up because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel you know you're going to get that hour where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to and this therapist isn't going to take it personally and they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week you just have this complete freedom honestly i think everyone should have therapy regardless of whether they think they need it because it's so amazing to have a confidant it's a journal that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iWay. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well... Oh yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. You've written a book this year that a lot of people are loving and talking about and finding very, very helpful. You wrote about lockdown. I did. Um, I don't know how the fuck you got it out so fast. I've never even heard of publishing working that fast. That is terrifying. It was really strange. I've got a blog that I keep that I started up at the beginning of the year. And I set, I set up a subscription blog where people have to pay because I just, I didn't care how many people joined. I just didn't want to like throw my personal, I was, I'm quite like open on it. I didn't want to like just throw that into the ether of the internet. I wanted to keep it quite contained and just have people read it that, um, were, yeah, that are interested in me, which I would recommend to all writers find your audience and don't put yourself out there to be attacked by people who don't like you um great but yeah sorry thanks, <laughs> so, thanks basically- so 10 years after I started my blog yeah, <laughs> thanks that's great no it's great it's great no you're doing great you're doing great um anyway, got anything so else I- got anything else <laughs> <laughs> do you want to just finish me off here here and now you know what? Let me just work up to the big one that's coming yeah, at the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, I had this blog and when lockdown started, I couldn't write a book because I didn't have the focus. So I would write a post every night about, I just kind of 
500 word post every night about basically how much parenting, how much parenting I was doing and how much I was drinking. And it was quite funny. And I would make notes on my phone all day as to what happened. And then put the kids to bed, pour some wine and write this blog and post it. And my readers just loved it. And my publishers were obviously following the blog. And after about two months, they were like, you know, if you wanted to, we could turn this into a book. And so, um, and I said no at first because it was quite personal and I write fiction now and the idea of doing a non-fiction book just wasn't what I wanted to do at all. And I just kind of thought, fuck it, we've all, all been through this mad experience this year. I'm okay, I'm, let's just open up and share. So by the time I got the book deal, probably in May, I'd already written 45,000 words. The book was kind of done. So then I just had to kind of piece it together and add essays and do all this stuff. And so... The publishing process was just very quick. As soon as I gave it to them, the finished manuscript, I had the hard copy in my hand in like weeks. They were like, if we don't get this out now, there's going to be 40,000 books about people's experiences in lockdown. And so hats off to HarperCollins because they just, and somehow bought out a book that I started writing in February. In March, they bought it out um, on the 1st of October. It was published. It's amazing. I've never even heard of that before, honestly. No. Like they, they demand like months and months and months in advance normally. And tell us about that book and just, I mean, not going into too much detail because people obviously should should buy it themselves. That's but, right. you know, but I, I, but I think, you know, as much as you detest the idea of being relatable, or you used to, <laughs> um, I feel as though everyone has found this book to be incredibly relatable. Obviously you've gone through a lot this year and you went through loss um, and you went through parenting and uh, to the point where you had zero help whatsoever. And I think any parent out there who's who's having to go through that knows what it's like to also have like, you have two kids under the age of five. Uh, you're also there with your partner. Neither of you are able to work. Neither of you know where your income is coming from. You're both kind of stuck together in a house with two very small children in a pandemic, having gone through a huge emotional thing at the beginning of the year. The world is falling apart. There's political unrest. There's violence in the streets. You know, it's been mad and and you didn't sugarcoat any of it. And I think that that's really cool. Yeah, I didn't sugarcoat any of it because what was the point in writing a book about my experience of 2020 that didn't have ups and downs? I But I did, what was really nice about it, what kept me going is how the, I mean, one line that I say in the book, which I really stand by is so much life happens when nothing is happening. And that's what 2020 taught me. Like life will be, smaller and happier after this experience like you think this, uh, for me personally yes my need to kind of be connected and out there like I left Twitter this year I've just like just honed everything just down a bit and it's just much it's just it's it's much better and I know obviously that the world will open up and you know start working again and like things will get bigger but I've definitely kind of shared a lot And I'm a working mother who's always on a deadline, who has to come up with ideas for stories and cannot turn my brain off. So therefore, I don't really go to work nine to five. Well, I do. I go to physically, but I'm always thinking about my books. I'm always making notes on my phone. I'm always like working all the time. I always say, hang on a minute, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. I'm just like, I'm just thinking this. I've just got to go upstairs and write that down. That's what I'm like all the time. And even though I'm always there to pick the kids up and I cook them all their meals and I do all this stuff, I'm very there. I am always, I've always been distracted from yeah. the day they were born. 
Yeah, you've always been like one of the busiest people I know. Like it was, yes. it was like I suppose it was like two years where like no one could hang out with you because you were just like no. I'm on four hundred deadlines. And I've got two small babies. I know. So that so that's kind of what. So it was really nice to not be that. And I know I'm. I know obviously I wrote a book, but it was very different from writing a fiction book. Like I said, it was it was a blog, a diary. It wasn't like what you know. Didn't have to write like massive bodies of text and invent a whole world. So I've really I've really quite enjoyed. Um, being so much more like just present with my kids. I used to be, say if I would, I used to have that kind of feeling and so many working parents will relate to this. The fear of my kid getting sick where I'd have to pick them up from school and spend the day at home. And you know, the fear constantly of something getting in the way of work, the fear of like um, one of them falling over and it becoming about that when I had a meeting at 10 o'clock. And now I've just kind of been like, I've, I've got rid of a lot of the feeling that I can control everything much more chilled, but we had to go for COVID tests today because my little guys, one of my, um, my five-year-old's friend tested positive. Um, and he was in school with her last week. So we had to go and get COVID tests. And obviously apart from the like actual, Oh God, I hope my kid's okay. I didn't have a panic attack about, um, this means I can't work which would be what I would usually do. Oh God, this is going to mess up. Like the plans had, I just didn't care. I was just like, don't worry, darling, we're going to take you for a test. And if you, if you get ill, I'm here to look after you and nothing's going to get in the way of that. That's been a really nice experience as a parent rather than being constantly worried that everything's going to take me away from my work, essentially. But also I do love the fact that you talk about being a working mum. I do love the fact that you talk about being distracted and having a desire and a wish outside of your, outside of just being a mum, you know, and I feel like we, and that isn't the case for everyone, but there are some mums out there who do feel that way and who do feel horribly shamed for not having their children be the entire centre of their universe. Of course they are to some degree for many, many parents, but having a still hanging on to a dream or a passion or needing that outlet for your intellect I think is something that we don't talk about enough for mums like they're made to feel guilty for for wanting to get away from their kids for a minute to go and do something really creative here's the truth we're not made to feel guilty we make ourselves feel guilty it's all on us like actually I found pers- I found personally in the in the and I know this isn't the case for everyone in the world that I exist in my mm-hmm. career is very support my career is like the people around me are very supportive of me working, but I I put the guilt on myself half the time. But that doesn't come from nowhere, though. That doesn't come no, from nowhere. There is so it much doesn't. conditioning. We don't just shame ourselves. I do believe that there is a global societal shaming of mums. And, you know, we have this like deity that you're supposed to be, this like perfect Mother Earth, always in control of everything and, and never needing anything more than just your babies. And I no, think you're that very it right. seeps in via like all of the conditioning out there. Uh, you, you're so right. I mean, I'm married to an actor and Chris sometimes has to go away and work for a few weeks. Uh, it's so hard for him. He absolutely hates it. He hates being away from the kids. And we have a kind of rule that we never do more than two weeks. And if he would, usually without COVID, would just be on a plane a lot, come backwards and forwards. I can take a five-month job somewhere and come back every two weeks. Like... I'm sure there are actresses and people who do, but I, I just, I, that's just, an, I just couldn't and wouldn't do that. And that's not ever a conversation that we've had. That's just something that I, I guess is just ingrained in us that we just, I just couldn't and wouldn't, I wouldn't even entertain the idea of taking a five month job and being away from my kids loads. But 
there is this presumption and you see it in the way that the productions deal with us that Chris is just going to do that and dads can just go and, you know, and commute. And that's something that is hard for them too, that it's just presumed that that's fine. Um, and I do think the way that men are dealt with in offices where um, they're, they're expected to kind of work extra hours and that everything is taken care of at home. You're right. You're totally right. There is just a conditioning that we all live among that, of course, affects mums in the way that we are. But yeah, I feel. I mean, I feel. I feel really. I feel very. You're very lucky that you've got you've you've built a community yourself. It's not just lucky. Like you've also been very, like you're very very emotionally intelligent. You're also like a very very self aware person. You're very you're very analytical of people uh, as soon as you meet them. And I see you do it, and it's great. And I'm the same. And I think you've been very very protective with your social space for a really long time, in yeah. a way that I think is really cool. And I don't know if a lot of us do that enough. If we are self-preservational enough and and careful enough with who we find toxic and who we just can't be asked to make the time for and I'm sure that motherhood probably make creates more of a magnifying glass as to like who is your priority or not it's just like oh I absolutely cannot be fucked with time making time for you if you don't like nourish me in some way no also can I just go back on another thing because there's, there's something about and I'm just going to be really honest when I'm talking about like being a working mum and it being hard or I've got no fucking idea how hard it is to be a working mum. I'm a writer. I'm in control of all my own hours. Yeah. I can work from home if I need to. I um, I have got no idea what it's like. And part of the reason why I think I don't ever want to be on TV ever again is I don't want to work for a production where I'm told I have to be somewhere at eight in the morning and I can't leave until seven at night because I just... I can, I'm home and I can pick my kids up. I'm just always available. I get stressed about deadlines, but... Um, I just want to make that really clear that I think, you know, my job as a working mum is I really don't, I, you know, I've really got no idea of the plight of someone who has to go and sit in a, you know, an office at certain times. And yeah, isn't allowed to leave. three or four jobs, yeah. Yeah, or, or it's like is, whose boss isn't understanding and who is, you know, who gets a hard time. So um, I just wanted to say that because sometimes when I talk about being a, a working mum, it just, I, I almost, as I'm saying it, realise that... Um, it's not, that's not, that's not what I would term as a struggle in my life. I just, I think, I feel like I'm trying to come up with ideas for stories. People are like doing actual jobs. And no, for sure. Work. For sure. And look, and I, and I always respect anyone who can just like recognize that like level of ease in their own life. But also we were just talking about the fact that it's just nice to hear a woman take pride in her job still, even as a mum and not feel as though it's a shameful thing to be able to be not just like proud, but also just to, just to want more. It's okay. If you want more, if you don't want more, that's also fine. There's nothing wrong with you, but I think we should just allow space for both. I think so. I think that's so right. And I, I think we, you know, I definitely feel like the women are so supportive now that the way that we, the way that we talk to each other has changed in the last 10 years. I feel very lucky to be a mum at this point in history where, you know, the vibe is that women should be able to get and do whatever they want. I, I actually feel um, I've, which I, my, the, what makes me sad is when I've got friends who don't want to work because there's nothing they particularly want to do. And it's more complicated for them to, they, to go and sit in a job that they don't love. And they feel embarrassed about the fact that they want, they're happy to be home with the kids. It exactly. really upsets me. It really upsets me because I'm like, the whole point of this wasn't to make women who really enjoy it feel less than the whole point was just that if you want to do more that you can exactly. I always find it I, I always find it so I find I've got a you know strident feminist to the end but it really makes me sad when women who you know choose and make them really happy to be home feel like um 
they feel embarrassed by it in some way when honestly the hardest thing I have to do in my life is raise kids. Yeah, I also feel like a lot of us had that realisation this year of like, Oh God, you know, I don't know. I think I, I, I had that realisation around like March where the world stopped and I'd been, you know, just like <laughs> devoured by the media. <laughs> and it was just, I was having a really shit time. And I just kind of felt like, I think I, I think I thought I was supposed to be a boss bitch, but actually I think I'm just a, like a, almost dead bitch. You know, like I've really just yeah. felt like I'd run, I was running myself into the ground. I hadn't taken a day off in three years uh, and not even an hour off. I was working 18 to 20 hour days. I was sleeping three to four hours a night. I was flying all over the place trying to deal with the UN or trying to deal with acting on set or trying to deal with activism or this this fucking politician or that fucking celebrity selling a laxative. Like I was in chaos all the time. And I've a little bit been like, I just kind of want to stay at home with my boyfriend and my friends and my dog. And all of a sudden, now that my year is being planned out next year and it looks as though my career will return back to quote unquote normal, I'm a little bit horrified and a little bit like, oh, I don't know if I still have that same level of ambition that I was sort of programmed to believe I was supposed to have as a feminist. It's like, you must go out and you must grab every opportunity you can. I still think that if that's what you want, you should. But it's also okay to just like, and not I'm really glad everything. to hear you say that I'm really glad to say that because there was a point where I you were doing everything and I was like I hope I hope she knows that she doesn't have to do everything but I think really okay to have those like massive bursts of huge output and energy just as long as you know that you don't need to maintain that forever well, well you get fear-mongered like especially as a woman especially if you're brown and if you're over 30 and if you're a bit curvier than other actresses or other present, like whatever, other public figures. Like and if you're you told, run around in a chicken suit. Yeah, if you run around in a fucking chicken suit <laughs> <laughs> or in a wedding dress. Um, like, you know, it's, and if you're gobby, you know, if you're someone mm. who's got a big mouth on you and controversial, like a, div- a divisive or controversial personality, it's like you're told very much like the time is ticking and you've got a sprint, not a marathon. So you're lucky to be, I don't know how you snuck into this room. If you're going to stay here, it's not going to be for very long. So you better just do as much as you can. And I had so many aspects aspirations within activism where I was just like I need to raise awareness about everything um yeah. and so I was just like I every single opportunity that came around where I would use it to be able to talk about something I was like I'm going to take it but I just burned out and I lost my way and my energy and also realized that part of me had been caught up in the kind of get the bag rat race yeah you know I've got to become this I've got to become that like you know I I said CEO in you know with a bit more like movement in my shoulders than I do now <laughs> whereas now I look at CEO as something I'm incredibly proud of but also like I look at it as a tremendous burden as well rather than just like haha boss bitch I don't, I don't want to be a boss bitch anymore not for me personally I, I'm tired and I don't think had this year not happened I would have had that moment to I don't think I would have stopped I think I would have just carried on and also you have the expectation of so many people in you just being like you're the one who's like you've broken free, you're going to do it for all of us. So you're going to be the role model. And I think there is nothing, there is nothing more suffocating or terrifying than being a role model. I actually, on the role model thing, I actually wrote about this a few years ago because I was like, people started calling me a role model. And I was like, I have done nothing where I want to be called a role model. I don't want to be a role model. I don't, I don't, why is it that women have to be role models? Men don't need to be, they can just be fucking rock stars. Yeah. It's really, it's, I think it's, you know, be aspirational, be inspiring, be all these things. But this idea that you're a role model means that then if you put a foot out of line, then you've, um, you've, 
you messed up. I hate that box. Well, that's what I love about you, though. Like, you post very, very candid selfies. You you talk about drinking too much wine all the time, (laughs) which is what you say. This is not me projecting onto you. You just always talk about worrying that everyone thinks you're an alcoholic. I just think everyone thinks I'm a raging alcoholic. The irony is I drink so much, but I really... I really am not an alcoholic and I, I'm sure there's people listening thinking yeah that was me I mean that is the sentence isn't it <laughs> but, but no I don't I drink don't. it because I need it I just want it like I, know I, I just need want it. it constantly I don't I don't I'm very lucky not to have an addictive personality but I am an incredibly indulgent person I'm incredibly indulgent and wine is just like my favorite thing so yeah <laughs> ask, me, ask me again in 10 years and um and we'll see how that's going yeah, you won't have a head anymore. You'll have to, it'll just turn into a cork, <laughs> a cork with a fringe. <laughs> Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So what else have you struggled with this year in lockdown? Well, um, well I, had a, I lost a friend at the start, so that was really sad. Yeah. And so dealing with grief throughout this was really, I mean, I, I lost my mum when I was a kid. So I, I think I always thought I knew what grief was. And when you lose a parent or lose someone at seven years old, you have no fucking idea what grief is. You don't know what grief is until it hits you as a grown up and it happens to someone that you really love. And so um, it was my friend Caroline and she took her own life on the 15th of February and it was absolutely brutal. And I kind of think anyone who's lost somebody who's listened to this will know that you just cannot understand how the world can continue to be the same when that person is gone. Mm -hmm. And this year meant that it wasn't. It was so fucking weird. I remember sitting on the plane on the way back from the funeral. I was on one of the last flights out of London. So that was on the um, the 13th of March or something when it was all just shutting down. And um, I remember just thinking to myself, if the world won't change, I have to change dramatically because this I can't can't live as I did before without her in it in this world. I can't exist like as I did before. And also almost what happened was the world did change dramatically. So it was almost <laughs> like <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, so I'll I'll be fine then. And um and it was so you think dealing with grief when you can't leave the house and you've got to be with two kids, you could I could tell myself that that was a really unfortunate situation. Or I could tell myself that I'm really lucky to have these two kids to lift me out of this fog and to keep me up and to keep me, you know, happy, essentially. And also, I don't want to fucking see anybody else anyway. The idea of going out and living a normal life. So I feel like it was almost like a weird blessing in terms of my own personal struggle this year. Mm. Um, And then COVID has been, you know, it's a test in marriage, isn't it? Tested your relationship. Fucking hundred <laughs> percent. I mean, we've had we um we've done really well actually. Chris and I have survived this year. We love each other deeply. We have dinner together every night. We 
cuddling oh, in the yeah, kitchen. Oh, yeah, you have a, no, like, in this industry, you are known as, like, the dream married okay, couple. Okay, well, that, that's good. We've come out of it. Look, we're not perfect. And we've had moments this year where I was just like, I, 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 I cannot be in a house with this person anymore. And I know for a fact he's felt the same. But then you, when you come out of that bad day, week, month, whatever it is, you know that's all normal and part of marriage and part of any human relationship. And that everything is just so... Um, Amplified, so magnified. Yes, yeah. that's the word. Exactly. Because of this. And so I'm really proud of Chris and I for coming. I felt sounded like, I'm proud of Chris and I for, um, for <laughs> coming Philip, through this. Philip and I. Wisdom, how cordial. Um, <laughs> so I'm really proud of us. And that's a really nice feeling to end the year on that my, my family is intact. My kids adore us and we adore them and they're very happy. And I, that's, amazing because of what they'd missed out on with school and blah 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 and um so I feel like in answer to your question I've had some really really some of the darkest days of my life this year truly went to some really really sad places when Caroline died and still can go there very easily but I've also experienced um levels of joy and contentment in my own life which I always sort of questioned a bit because I was like am I really supposed to be this like married woman with kids that me like wasn't I supposed to always be the single one who didn't have kids and then suddenly I'm like just so 2.4 and like how did this happen and there's always been a part of me that kind of fantasizes about the other dawn who never did that wondering if that would have been better not that I haven't been happy and I don't love my kids and husband but you always just think god just what what are the sliding doors situation of your own life? I just don't feel like that. I feel so grounded in my family and so like yeah. I've always wife. I've always found it really interesting because I mean because your your parents split up when you were one and your mother passed away when you were seven and so you've kind of been able to and correct me if I'm wrong here which I normally am um, but you've kind of been able to write your own rule book on parenting because you don't have such a specific I know you were raised by wonderful relatives and like grandparents and aunts and uncles but you've been able to kind of write the mother handbook yourself which very few people ever get to do because they've normally had such a like overpowering relationship with their parents that they try to then kind of whether they want to or not grapple with replicating that's very true because my auntie who raised me was wonderful but she wasn't um a mother I was you know by the time I moved in with them when I was 10 they, they'd already had two kids who had grown up and left the house. They We lived with them and they took care of us and they, they did a great job, but it wasn't parental. So I've never really had like an overpowering parent, which I think is really good. I'm the kind of mum who um, I'm, I'm, I speak to my kids like they're people. Like if they upset me, if they hurt my feelings, I scream, you've upset me and you've hurt my feelings at them. And I have done since I was, since they were tiny. Other parents I know would be more like um, speaking a a calm voice. Say, you don't talk to me like that. You don't talk to me. I'm like, you can't speak to me like that. You've broken my heart. I'm crying because of you. You hurt my feelings. And I slam the door. And then what happens (laughs) is they kind of open the door a few minutes later and they're like, oh God, I'm really sorry. And my kids are so like in touch with emotion. They're such gorgeous. My five-year-old has just turned into the most loving, like, um, emotional but what's the word I'm looking for emotionally intelligent person like I can't believe what he's turned into and I swear it's because I screamed about my feelings (laughs) (laughs) well you've also you've also been talking about uh things that you want to teach us on you've got two boys and you are as you said you know a, a lifelong ride or die feminist and you wrote in your book this year chats that you plan to have with your kids someday 
Do you want to go through a bit of this with me? It's very good. I'm going to start with the first one. Never try to finger... A, she starts with this one. Never try to finger a girl under a blanket in a room full of people because you think you can get away with it. Wait, true, and then number it? two is great. It's so true. And then number two is great. Always wash your willy before a blowjob, but never tell her your mother told you to do that. In fact, never mention me during sex. Full stop ever. Full stop <laughs> I I love this list of commandments so much. It's all about sex. It's all about body shaming and consent. It's so good. Never laugh at her body, even if she laughs at yours. Stay strong, walk away. You can do so much better and she's not worth it. Um, never express disgust at the smell of her poo and always crack a window and use a loo brush after yours. Love you so much for saying but you know what? I remember dating guy once when I was really young and I pooed in his house and he kept going on about it. And I was like, that gave me anxiety about ever pooing at anybody's house ever again. It was a real thing. I really regret telling you that story, but it's so, it's true. It's like no. these, these things that boys can say to girls. And by the way, this is presuming my my um, kids want to be with women. They, the, My elders could go either way at this point. We're not, we're not entirely sure. Whatever, whoever he loves. But it was, it was really a lesson in like how to treat the person that you love sensitively and be, um, there are certain things, you know, that boys said to me as teenagers to stay with you forever. And the idea that my kids would be responsible for those like cruel, scathing remarks just because that boy felt insecure in that moment, especially in bed. Yeah, they're scars for us, aren't they? Yes, terrible. And you carry them with you. And even, I know I'm in a loving relationship with my husband. I still sometimes think about certain things that ex-boyfriends have said to me that really like, oh God, that really... Fuck you! Why did you? Do, you know, it's terrible. So I want, I really want mine to, and I will have embarrassing chats with them, and I will say the things that I don't believe generations of mothers have said before. But I think, I think the way that we're going to kind of um, have men be better with women is to um, say the awkward things and embarrassing things to our sons. Yeah, I'm the biggest believer in that. Like I always refer to them as sponges, you know, at that age. Like yeah. kids are just sponges. They're just going to like just soak up all of our, or not only all of our lessons that we teach them, but also all of our own behaviours. I think it's really important to be aware of like how you are behaving in front of your kids, especially your boys maybe, because you have the ability to change them before the internet gets its fucking grubby little hands on them. You yeah, know, know. You, have, you have the power to really influence the way that they respond, the way that they will maybe correct their friends if their friends say something problematic the way that they will treat little girls like I love the fact that your little boy's best friend is a little girl I think that's lovely that's so sweet that that's his best mate and you know I love the fact that they're not like you know sectioned off in little gender groups the way that we were at my school um I think it's so important to be open and honest and I, I think it's really cool that you've had at least this year and it sounds like from the way you're talking there will be more years of you having more time with your kids to have these um completely appropriate I'm not going to say inappropriate completely appropriate and and deep and perhaps slightly cringe at times from what I'm reading from your extract well, um, how, old, how old do they have to be before I give them the blowjob line <laughs> I mean judging by the statistics 11 unfortunately oh, <laughs> I made a documentary about it Dawn it's 11 oh my god that anyway. is horrifying let's leave it on that note
Perfect. Let's leave it on (laughs) 11-year-olds getting head. (laughs) Amazing. Um, I really, I really appreciate, I really appreciate your, just your presence and the presence that you have been in my life, even from afar and now up close for the last like 15 years. Honestly, your, um, your documentaries have always meant the world to me. I'm really sad that you don't make more and more and more of them, but I understand why you wouldn't want to, because it's a very early start and a long day away from children. Um, But (laughs) I love the voice you are online and I love the the authenticity that you put yourself out with. I think it's incredibly important and we don't have enough people yet who do that. And I'm sure that you're one of the people who, who has inspired me to stay true to myself and just be honest and show the warts and all of everything. And I think it's really cool. And I, and I think so. if we all did that a bit more, that we would be a happier and freer gender and society as a whole. I'll take responsibility for the um, for the positive progression of female existence. Thank you. Yeah, well done. It was all thanks to Dawn Porter. You heard it here first. This is a breaking Dawn, news. Oh, Porter, you did it again. <laughs> oh Blame god! Nothing. This is racism. I'm being racist. <laughs> I'm unable to say your white name. I'm so sorry for my my racism at the beginning and end of this podcast. <laughs> I fucking love you, even if I don't know how to say your name right. Um, (laughs) Please tell us where people can find you and your work. Um, At Hot Patooties on Instagram. Indeed. Now, will you please tell me, Dawn O'Porter, what do you weigh? I weigh being a mum, being a writer. I weigh being a wife and I weigh my amazing charity, Cheese Love, which is one of the biggest successes of... um, of anything I've ever done and I'm so proud of it so I weigh choose love and you weigh being everyone's favourite girl next door whether or not you <laughs> want to be the girl next door damn it <laughs> oh, um, I want to be a model <laughs> <laughs> oh god um, have a great day love you lots love you too bye Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil is produced and researched by myself, Jamila Jamil, Erin Finnegan and Kimmy Gregory. It is edited by Andrew Carson and the beautiful music that you're hearing now is made by my boyfriend, James Blake. If you haven't already, please rate, review and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support. I really appreciate it and it amps me up to bring on better and better guests. Lastly, at I Weigh, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. You can leave us a voicemail at 1-818-660-5543 or email us what you weigh at iweighpodcast at gmail.com. It's not in pounds and kilos, so please don't send that. It's all about your just, you, you know, you've been on the Instagram anyway. And now we would love to pass the mic to one of our listeners. One of you lovely listeners wrote in to tell me that I weigh my mental well-being, but I also weigh the fact that privilege is a major contributor to that mental health. I also weigh my career as a PR professional. And most importantly, I weigh the access to learn and be a little bit better every day. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean Every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well...
Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.